Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Together, Cameron and I will talk about why, after 500 years, the Reformation is still worth celebrating, taking as our guide the lyrics of Martin Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. We'll also discuss why the Reformation-era call to be always reforming is different from the modern mandate to be always updating. Well, Pastor Mark, this last Sunday was Reformation Sunday, and fittingly, we sang one of Martin Luther's most famous hymns, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And... I love the melody of that song. It's a very strong German song. But as we were singing it this time through, I was I was thinking more intently about the words. Actually, Sunday morning before the service, I sat down and was just reading through them and and thinking, you know, this isn't the most Lutheran song I've ever read. Um, there's something there's something about it that strikes me a little weird. He's spending some time talking about the a lot of time talking about the devil the evil one, the world, not necessarily Lutheran theology. But your sermon on Sunday was about the temptations of Christ. And I started to make some connections as I was sitting, listening to you preach, as I was reflecting afterwards as well. I thought maybe we could talk about that a little bit. Right. No, that's an interesting observation. I don't know that I've ever thought about like the... The unlutheranness of, of Luther's most famous hymn. But but I, I think I can see what you're getting at there because oftentimes when we think about Luther, we think of of uh, you know being a theologian of the cross. Mm-hmm. And that hymn does have a sort of exaltation to it, you know, the the reveling in the victory of Christ. Mm-hmm. And yet, of course, it is full of that suffering and that that difficulty you know it ends with the body they may kill yeah. uh, as if that's just an afterthought you know you can f- kill me physically and no big deal you know and yeah. so i think it does have that aspect but because it is so triumphant it does strike a different note maybe than than mm-hmm. we're accustomed to thinking of and honestly that was my thought about the temptation in the wilderness as well that as i wrestled with that text, I found it necessary to strike a different note than we typically do. Because I think what happens in the wilderness between Jesus and Satan is a real battle that leads to a real victory for Christ that has consequences that that you see throughout the rest of his ministry. And yet we just never seem to be talking about it, at least not in the context of that temptation. Yeah. Yeah, I like how you you set it up in your sermon saying how it it's kind of peculiar the way Jesus is baptized and then it seems like he's going off for some me time, I think you said, or right. some, you know, some kind of preparation like he's going out to just get ready for this big ministry he's about to launch when that's really not what's going on. Um I was hoping that we could spend I, I want to read through the lyrics. So, sure. Maybe sure. let's just for listeners who haven't actually yeah. heard this song, let's let's read through them. You're just going to read it. You're not going to belt it out. Or... <laughs> yeah, I'll just read it okay. um, for everyone's sake. So there are four verses here. 
A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe, his craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. So the, the first verse ends and it's talking about, it just ends with Satan, you know, yes. the, the evil one, which is kind of a strange way to end a verse. But we keep going. So, verse 2. Did we in our own strength confined, confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be. Jesus Christ, it is he. Lord Sabbath, his name, from age to age the same. He must win the battle. So, yeah, kind of a very victorious, uh, almost warlike image here. And that, that was the verse that made me see the connection to what's going on in the wilderness. Jesus is fighting the evil one. He is the man of God's own choosing. Yeah, the movement between the first verse and the second verse is fascinating because in the first, you're setting up the problem, really. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the, the enemy who's painted, and then in the second verse, you have Christ coming as, uh, as the challenger, as the one who's yeah. going to oppose this enemy. Uh, Lord Sabaoth is the Lord of hosts, yeah. you know, so we associate that with the commander of the armies of the mm-hmm. Lord and, and the Old Testament, and so there's a, a, a warlike picture of Christ there, which maybe isn't what we think of when we think of Jesus in the wilderness, you know, because he's all alone. There's no army there. He's fasting. And so he's not even, you know, pumping iron to get ready. He's actually making himself weaker Mm -hmm. in anticipation of battle. But, you know, that, that physical weakening is connected to a spiritual strengthening. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Why? What is that relationship? So why why does Jesus seek to make himself weaker? Is it to to cast himself more fully on God for strength? Yeah, I think you could answer that question a lot of ways. I mean, one of the things that I found myself leaning towards is, again, keeping with this sort of battle motif, is that he's gone out in the wilderness, and, and in doing that, he's choosing his battleground. And then through fasting, he's equipping himself for battle. You know, he's spiritually focused, but he's also making himself vulnerable, almost as if to draw Satan out. You know, here I am. I'm all alone. Oh, look at me. I'm so hungry. Now would be a great time to tempt me. And so, you know, again, that's you're you're speculating, you're reading into it. But I think there's there's something there. But of course, we also have that that like the asceticism connection where when we think about uh, fasting, there's this idea that if I could just bring myself to fast for 40 days and 40 nights, think how spiritual I would be (laughs) by the end of that. And, and I think that's a real connection that the the mortification of the flesh, uh, bringing the physical under discipline does result in an openness, an ability to focus on the spiritual. Although, you know, even even there, having said that, I think there's a danger of over-romanticizing that because in Jesus's case, he goes out in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, he fasts, he prays, and 
rather than sort of getting close to God in the way that we imagine, he draws close to Satan who tempts him, Uh you know? So I think, you know, if you're imagining that they're just adopting, you know, this, this nifty spiritual discipline is going to lead to some kind of a higher level experience in Jesus's case, it leads to temptation, but also victory. Yes. So he must win the battle. That's the end of verse two. We've got two more verses. And though the world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And there I'm thinking of how Jesus is responding to Satan's threats with words of right. scripture, you know, right. and felling him, responding to him with the word of God and rebuking him for his temptations. Yeah. And also the way that after that wilderness moment, the kingdom of God is nothing to fear, as it were, from Satan's kingdom. You know, Jesus is constantly casting demons out and, and bossing them around and smacking them, you know, this uh-huh. way and that way. And clearly there's not a battle going on there. There's, there's no like struggle between light and darkness. When Jesus encounters the powers of darkness, they flee, they howl in protest. They are subdued by his word. And I think that's because of this great victory, he's already won over the prince himself. And so obviously if that's the case, then, then the minions are not going to stand a chance. And so when Luther writes about our ability to resist, to endure, I think we see the basis for that here. You know, if Christ has conquered Satan through righteousness by not succumbing to temptation the way that Adam did, then Jesus's people know the the defeatability of Satan and his hosts. Yeah, I liked that comparison to the temptation in the garden and the temptation of, of Christ in the wilderness and how Jesus, you know, he stands strong where Adam fell. And then it's it's as if in Christ we too can can stand strong against Satan. Here Jesus is binding the strong man to plunder his house, as he says later on, using that example. And we as his people benefit from that in, in his kingdom. Yeah, and that passage in Matthew 12 is is good to kind of look at because it surprises a lot of people when they hear that language to hear you say that Satan is bound right now. You know, oftentimes when you talk about the binding of Satan, that's something people imagine must be a future event because obviously you look at the world and everything that's going on in the world and you're like, this is, this is Satan bound. I'd hate to see Satan unbound, (laughs) but the reality is, yeah, you would because it's worse than this. You know, that the fact that the gospel can advance, the fact that people come to faith is, is testimony to the fact that Satan's arms are tied, that, that his kingdom is being plundered. You know, that Jesus is taking people that Satan thought of as his own and doing it with impunity. And so Jesus uses those words to explain how his ministry in the here and now is possible, not a future event. So I think Luther captures some of that because 
clearly he has a future victory in mind ultimately, but he also hints at the the sort of already not yet that we look forward to the the utter defeat of the powers of darkness. And yet now, because of Christ's first coming, we still have like a taste of that defeat now. Yeah, I think that verse three we just read gets at that taste of that defeat. And then this final verse here is maybe the the eschatological forward-looking conclusion. So he says, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And I, th- I think that's just a great summary of, of what's going on in, in Jesus' own life and ministry in that event and the temptation, but also in his, his entire ministry against the kingdom of Satan. His kingdom abides forever and his word abides forever. That final idea in that verse really does put you in mind of the first temptation in Jesus when he quotes Moses, you know, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Um, that is establishing that idea of the, let's say the, the, the impossibility of the physical truly satisfying that there always is going to be a shortcoming with this mortal life, with this physical existence until the spiritual is addressed, you know? And so I think that in order to be in a position where it's a comfort to you to think that although I may be killed, God's truth will still abide for that to be comforting. You really have to be focused on the spiritual over the physical, right? Because I mean, especially now, like in the 21st century, anybody who dies for an idea, we think of that as being kind of pitiable. You know, it's sad that there are people who would give their lives for some abstract notion when they could live to be old, happy consumers, satisfied, you know, in the physical. And it's only when you see through that and recognize there is like a higher spiritual reality, a a spirit within you that needs more than just physical comfort that you can sing those words and really mean them. But I think it's what makes that such a fitting hymn for Reformation Day. Because when we think about the Reformation, you know, and I struggled Sunday to summarize it in a single word. You know, I think sovereignty is often the word people will come up with, you know, that it's all about God's sovereignty. But I think you could say more than that. I mean, it's about God's sovereignty specifically applied to salvation and grace, you know, and that's what this hymn does so beautifully. It's, it's a hymn about God's power and God's victory, but the battle that he's victorious in is the battle of human redemption. Yeah. I would love to talk about that question a little more specifically if today in 2021 reformation day means anything different than what it meant to Luther in 1517. Um, or if, if we're celebrating the same things, if 
if we have a you know different perspective? What, what do you think that we celebrate? So you said the sovereignty of God, but maybe we can elaborate some more. What do we celebrate on Reformation Day? That's a great question because I think it would be easy to make the mistake of thinking that you know Reformation Day is number one, like a, an alternative to Halloween. You know, right. that we need, we needed yeah. a, a day that we could kind of set aside and we thought, well, let's use Halloween because you know, that's <laughs> evil. so evil and corrupt that we'll make it good by dressing up as men with pointy beards and skull. Oh, wait, no, that sounds a lot like Halloween, you know. Um, so it's not that, you know, that's a, a let's call that a historical coincidence, but it it's also not like Columbus Day. It's not that reformed people needed some sort of a heritage day that they could celebrate. Um, honestly, this is one of those days that it's always encouraging to see it broadly commemorated, not just by people who, you know, self-identify as reformed, but by anyone who appreciates the legacy of the Reformation or some aspect of it. But I think there is a, um, there's a value in reflecting on the Reformation because of the fact that I think we misremember the the Reformation a little bit. You know, we think about the Reformation with, let's say, uh, like the convenience of hindsight. And so people think, okay, well, what we're celebrating is is mainly a theological event, like the Mm -hmm. emergence of Reformed confessions or something like that, or the posting of the 95 Theses or any, any of that sort of thing you you could go to where it was primarily a theological thing that was going on. And I think the Reformation was broader than that, and it really helps us to understand the way that it was broader than that. So obviously theology was a part of it, but the Reformers themselves saw the main theater of operation as the, the theater of worship, not the theater of theology they were concerned about the reformation of worship of the life of the church and the worship of God's people. And so theology had to, you know, be reformed, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't enough, you know, to update the theology books. It was necessary to really focus on what it meant to worship. And so, um, I was really helped in understanding this by Carlos Ayer's book, uh, war against the idols. And that was uh, published by Yale University Press. I'm not sure, a few years ago. He, he later did a kind of big, you know, uh, almost coffee table kind of book on the Reformation called Reformations. <laughs> and uh, because that's what we do now, <laughs> you know, it's, it's civilizations, Reformations, everything is sort of plural now. But, but uh, actually, I prefer the earlier book for its focus specifically on the way the the reformers were focused on going back to worship and purifying worship according to scripture. And so that, that might actually be a good way to think about the, the reformation project that it was, it was about purifying every aspect of the Christian faith according to scripture. Obviously that presupposes that Christianity had become uh, corrupt that that it was subject to a lot of um, innovation and interpolation and syncretism and that sort of thing and so by reencountering scripture we could roll that back and get back to not you know back to some sort of pristine ancient church but at least 
back to a basis where the, the things we were doing and the traditions we were informed by were themselves molded and informed by scripture and at least not contrary to them. Yeah. And so I think that there was a, it was a very Renaissance kind of movement, you know, uh, in the Renaissance, everybody was getting back to the sources, going back to uh, classical antiquity, going back to, you know, the, the primary sources. And so the Reformation was really Christianity going back to its primary sources, becoming acquainted once again with scripture and with the early church fathers and um, things that not that the church at that time was wholly ignorant of them any more than the church at that time was wholly corrupt. Right. But there was this tension, there was this need to reform and, that's not something that, that any side now would argue. You know, at the time, they argued over it. But, right. but now, in hindsight, even Catholic scholars, Roman Catholic scholars, will refer to the Catholic Reformation and, and the reform efforts that were undertaken. And so there's, ironically, a universal acknowledgement of the need for reform. It's just, you know, some people say, well, but it only needed to reform so much, <laughs> you know? right. It is interesting to think about the Reformation as one of of worship because it instantly pulls you back into how the theology got them there in a sense. I think of Luther, of course, and and Calvin and just their concern about who God was to humanity and and all of a sudden you're talking about the doctrines of grace and yes, God's sovereignty, but also how, how do we know we have a right standing with God and what gets us that kind of a standing? And then you're going through all of these things that Luther discovered, you know, rediscovered and, and Calvin too. And suddenly we're back to the good news of the gospel. Something you said on Sunday struck me. It was, it turns out that the sovereign God of scripture is also a God of love. And I think that there's something, there's something that essentially, I think Luther found that, you know, it turns out that this God that I've been almost afraid of for, for all these years, it turns out that he's a God of love in Jesus Christ and that he's, he's invited me to be his child. And then Calvin too, talking about God as his father, how basically worship all comes down to seeing God as your father in Christ. So that's, that's what right worship is. You know, it's, it's, it's the theology that informs the worship, doxology, and theology going together. Right, and and worship really does shape the culture of the church. And I think that that, especially in the case of Martin Luther, when you think about that traumatic pilgrimage to Rome, that was so influential on him, but not in the ways that that you know he would have anticipated before he made the journey. You know, Luther goes to Rome really thinking he's going to the epicenter of the Christian faith and expecting that he will find there a culture shaped by this theology, right? He's a theology teacher and he's going to the epicenter of the theology. He's going to be in a city that, that is glorious, that, that reflects this to the extent that any you know fallen human city can. But instead he finds a very different reality and recognizes that that reality is shaped by like a different culture than the theology that flows from scripture, right? There's something, something wrong in that, that equation. And so I think you can see that the desire to recover biblical theology goes hand in hand with the desire to recover what we might say, uh, biblical culture or 
the way we would talk about it at grace, you know, a theology of grace has to produce a culture of grace. And if it doesn't, then there's something wrong. Maybe the, the theology of grace isn't really fully grasped or lived. And so living your theology brings you to the cross. It brings you to worship. So all of this is, is wrapped up in what it means to worship, what it means to be in the presence of God, what it means to adore him and, and to revel in his glory. And so ironically, no matter where you are, you know, in the Christian world, whether you look at something like Reformation Day as a, as a good thing we should celebrate or, or a horrible thing that, that we should lament, the reality is that what drove it and what motivated it is something that I think every faithful Christian can relate to. And it does have to do with that standing before God and that, that recognition of his absolute power hand in hand with his absolute love which gives you the sense that that whatever it is we fear and dread, whatever it is we see in ourselves that seems as if it cannot be overcome, it turns out not only can it be overcome by the all-powerful God, but but his plan from the beginning was to overcome it. Right. And so it just, it, it lightens that weight and it gives you just this glorious sense of the the, the grace that God has focused on us. Well, the reformers talked about their reformations, but they also talked about this practice of, of continual reformation of always reforming. I don't know the Latin phrase. Do you know? Semper reformanda. Yeah, there you go. Like this continual reformation. And that's something that my seminary talked about, that they, they like this idea that we're, it's not like we've discovered or rediscovered the doctrines of grace or Calvinism or whatever it is. And we're set and it's, you know, we're good now, but that there's this continual process of almost rediscovery again of, of God's grace and, and sovereignty. What do you think it means for us today to, to be continually reforming? Yeah, that's a great question because like a lot of those uh, reformation slogans, it seems like people use them without appreciating what they truly mean. You know, like, like when we talk about yeah. sola scriptura, for example, you know, people often make a distinction between sola scriptura, scripture alone, and solo scriptura, like <laughs> scripture without any context or without reference to anything apart from like the proof text. And so there's, there's a need to contextualize and kind of think, okay, what do these things really mean? And so I think Semper Reformanda is a good example of that because that's an expression of humility that we recognize, certainly the reformers understood that they had not completed the work of reformation, you know, that they were just as frustrated by what they hadn't managed to do than they were delighted by what had been accomplished. Calvin certainly it's a great example of someone who, despite what we think about historically, like Calvin ruled Geneva and he got his way. Calvin didn't get to do what he wanted to do. You know, Calvin, great example, did not get to do weekly communion or, or at least weekly communion as he would have preferred because the magistrates, the political authorities thought that was too much of a hot potato. They wouldn't let him do it. And, 
And you see that in the Reformation in Germany, uh, a political settlement ends the Reformation, and suddenly Lutheranism is defined and fixed, and and you know there are certain things it's legal to believe, and other things that it's 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 not legal to believe. Same thing in uh, the Anglican Reformation. You know the the famous uh, Middle Way that's trumpeted so much is designed not by a theologian but by a queen who wants to hold on to her kingdom and essentially draws the line and then everybody falls in line with it and, and rationalizes it. And so you have these tensions, you know, that are real and, and this realization throughout the Reformation that, that we've only come so far, that there's so much more left to be done. But that's not the same thing as saying something like uh, always changing you know, like, well, things aren't fixed. There's always going to be change and development and progress. And we just want to be um, keeping, you know, up with the latest thoughts and mm-hmm. trends and that sort of thing. So so the fact that you're current does not mean you're always reforming. Right. Because the Reformation has a point of reference. Right. The Reformation is not about bringing the church into the, the 16th century and updating this medieval institution to Renaissance ideas. It is just as much about reconnecting with the past or more specifically with, with a sort of standard outside of time found in the revealed word of God. And so reforming always has to take the point of reference of scripture into account. And so you're not always reforming unless you're always going back to scripture Right, and always kind of developing farther down that path of Scripture, getting past the lines that were drawn by the magistrates of old, and more fully realizing that project of Reformation. So that's what they had in mind. They weren't thinking, you know, one day it's going to be unpopular to believe in, in biblical ideas of sexuality, so it'll be important to reform our way right. into a different view of that. Of course, that's not what they had in mind. And so... I think it's good to distinguish between like the meaning of these terms and the way that they're used these days. Um, I have no problem with people saying, Hey, look, it's, it's really important to me that we be current and I always want to be current. Great. Just <laughs> don't say that's always reforming. Yeah. yeah. Cause there's, it's a different thing. Sure. Sure. Well, at grace, we talk about more grace, more depth and more community. And maybe that's, our specific way of, of always reforming, you know, thinking about it's, it, it is interesting the way you say reforming in that sense is yes, moving forward, but it's a, it's a also aligning yourself to scripture or to, you know, what happened when Jesus was here. So it's in that sense, always looking backward too. Right. Right. But I, I think at grace we've, We've kind of captured all all of that maybe under those three words, grace, depth, and community, where we're trying to, you know, align ourselves with with God's word and in I, particular I, in the way that we talk about those things, we make it really clear that we don't claim to have cornered the market on any of them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we long for more grace, we long for more depth, and we long for more community. And and the fact that we long for them is an admission that we've only managed to do so much and need so much more. And so kind of built into the way that we think of ourselves is that sense of like the need for more 
uh, reformation, the reformation. need for more grace. And so I think it, it's a good and humbling thing to keep those words in your mind as we think about what the Reformation means to us. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll join us next time. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the commentary, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.